I'm back. <laughs> you know? <laughs> My least favorite thing is vulnerability. Most of you know that. And yet that is the uh, lesson that God continues to teach me. In His faithfulness, I hope that you believe the words that you sing when we worship together. Um, we just sang a line that says that what God allows in our life, He uses to shape us and strengthen us. Sometimes our minds can go to the place where we think He's doing things to us, but He's doing it for our good. He's doing it for our glory. We may never understand the reasons behind it, but we do know this. Uh, everything's going to be okay. My surgery, obviously, and my foot recently uh, revealed some things that proved to be a little bit more serious than what were first uh, thought through. If you continue to pray for me, uh, pray not just for healing, but the next step, that I would have wisdom, the doctors would have wisdom, and that uh, we'll do what we always do. We'll believe a better day is coming, and we'll keep moving forward for His glory. So much has happened in the last couple of weeks in our culture and in our world that, in my opinion, seems to be the culmination of years of drowning out the, the conscience or the notion and the Judeo-Christian ethos that uh, so shaped a nation. And in my opinion, I'm not sure it could have been on any fuller display than in the recent days when American woke ideology seemed to be absolutely everywhere, even when it made no sense. The day in which we lost so many men and women, when 170-plus Afghanistans lost their lives, all we heard about on Twitter and other places was woke ideology, from the military, the Speaker of the House, and even from the Taliban. We're going to join us in our fight of climate change. Maybe you think that's an admirable thing. I think they were mocking the West. I think we were making fun of us. How in the world did we get here? How in the world did all of this happen? This woke ideology has taken root over 40 years in our institutions and ultimately in the United States of America, and it's rotten to the core, even according to some left-leaning pundits. Interestingly enough, after the Taliban statement on climate warming, CBS, with a straight face, had a report that climate change was the real problem in Afghanistan. Not beheadings, not, not mercy killings, not ritual rape. And, how in the world did we get here? We were told that the adults were now in charge. Seemingly all they did was blame somebody else for this fiasco. The world at large in which we live, and the United States, by definition, seems to be in decline, and we're maybe seeing the last days of that before our very eyes. Some say, Pastor Jim, you have to see the positive. Oh, I am. 
not done yet, just bear with me. I do see the positive, and I do believe that God is good. I know that He is good, and unlike many in our world today, I know that He still sits on the throne. And the gates of hell will not prevail against His church. As we grasp that reality and live in such a crazy, crazy culture, as we see the decline before our very eyes, most importantly, you need to know this. What is taking place is the culmination of a battle of spiritual worldviews being played out in plain sight. We will either worship the Creator who created everything, or we will choose to worship the creatures that He created. And that spiritual battle and ideology, I shudder to think that perhaps the Taliban is more committed to their worldview than we are for ours, willing to even die for it. As we look at this being played out in in plain sight, as we look at the unraveling of the Christian Judeo-Christian worldview, as we, as we look at the implications of that with even those on the right and even more sinister evangelical Christianity, being compared to the Taliban and the evil that exists in the world today, how indeed are we going to survive all of this? Well, first, we're going to remind ourselves from the text before us that we're not the first ones to go through such a world upheaval and a challenge to the Judeo-Christian worldview and to our, and to our faith. In fact, in First Peter, Peter has spent most of his time talking to believers who are suffering under the weight of their spiritual faith and the persecution directly tied to that faith. The hands of Nero, persecution is increasing exponentially to the people that are the recipients of this letter. And Peter, time and time again, ties the suffering of those Christians with their eschatology. We'll we'll get to that in a little bit. But what Peter is trying to instill in the church at that point in time, and what must be instilled in the church today as we become the enemy, as, as our faith is the one under attack is that we need to develop, as Peter sought to in this text, a theology of suffering, a theology of suffering that addresses the necessary suffering that takes place when the spiritual battle that is being waged turns towards evil and away from good, and the consequences are severe and eternal, we must have something to fall back on. We must have something to rely on. We must have some place to go, some solace to find, some promise to cling to, and some kind of hope. God's not done yet in what He's doing. And in this theology of suffering, we must come face to face with the reality of Peter when he says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. What an important reminder, nothing that has happened in the days past was missed by God. Not a single thing that happened did God not know about. Was He not prepared for? Was He 
not engaged with. And when our suffering increases by way of our faith, or maybe that's not your suffering today in general, if you're going through some stuff, so to speak, Peter calls upon his people to entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while they continue to do good. There's a divine tension that comes with that as we wrestle with things that we never expected we would have to wrestle with, as we're called to do the right thing even when the flesh prevails, as we're tempted to look for a shortcut and an escape, when the Bible calls us to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil. Peter's words are important, and they're predicated with the reality that we are to humble ourselves in the sight of God. A few weeks ago today, we talked about that humbling and what that meant and how that would reflect itself. Little did we know that it would be something that we would have to draw upon in the most recent days. When he talks about humbling ourselves or putting on that cloak of humility, when he, when he calls upon us to be humble towards one another, clothing us, in, in, in fact, uh, making our whole countenance covered in that humility, we drew the line to John chapter 13, where Jesus says to His disciples, and this is in the waning days of His public ministry, now in the privacy of the upper room when literally all hell will break loose in the crucifixion, Jesus says to those most faithful to Him, recorded for us in John 13, when He had washed their feet, He put on His outer garments and resumed His place and said to them, this came after He got up from His seat and clothed Himself with a towel. A towel was a towel of humility. He said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. And if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, clothed in humility, you ought also to wash one another's feet in this same kind of of humility, Paul tells us in Philippians, he humbled himself, becoming obedient even to the death of the cross. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is now not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Peter, what are we supposed to do? In the midst of a world spinning out of control, in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, when you are experiencing personal suffering, perhaps not at the hands of persecution, but just because we live in a fallen world, we carry around sin in the flesh and, and things happen, we're to endure it, we're to humble ourselves, we're to get to the place where we understand and recognize that there is something bigger than life. There's something bigger than happiness. There's something greater than earthly contentment. There's something that will help us find our way in the worst and most darkest of times. 
And Peter will present that very thing to these people. It's one thing to speak to a group of people whose lives are being blessed and talk about humility. It's one thing to speak to the church in its heyday about coming persecution. It's one thing to speak to God's people about staying faithful when when you know the sting of death or the consequence of sin. It's a whole different matter when you are in the midst of the battle. Those are the people that Peter is writing to. I suspect that's you and I, too, in, in some way this morning. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Pray with me, please. Father, I'd ask, as we spend some time this morning reflecting upon this truth, that You'd further equip us for the battle that lies ahead, and that You'd remind us that there's only one thing that can sustain us. Everything else will fall away. Everything else will come up short. In spite of the promises of the culture and the world, or even these churches who, who only want to talk about good, there's bad, and there's very bad. There is absolute evil in the world today. We're crying out to you. We're asking you to make sense of it. We're asking, Father, that the time that we've spent in Peter's letter is not in vain. That somehow we have learned a theology of suffering that teaches us to turn to the only place where there are answers and hope. To that end, I pray that as we grasp the truth of this text this morning, that You'd encourage our hearts, that You'd remind us that a better day is coming, that You'd give us an amazing sense of anticipation, the clear understanding of evil, that it may get worse before it gets better, but it will get better better. Bless us with that notion, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In verse 6 of 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter writes, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you to Him. Be dominion forever and forever. And God's people said, amen and amen. As Peter writes to these beleaguered Christians facing and suffering the consequence of their faith as he addresses people going through dark valleys and and deep sorrow, he calls upon them to humble themselves 
R.C. Sproul says this humility is a microcosm of the entire Christian life. You cannot live the Christian life without a healthy sense of humility, a healthy notion that you are a bit player on a big stage with a God who cares for you and knows your sorrows. You cannot sustain yourself in the midst of persecution or suffering or heartache or despair. It cannot happen without biblical humility. And again, biblical humility is not thinking of yourself less, it's thinking less of yourself. It is understanding that this is a big world, and we have a big God, and He has everything under control. So Peter writes, humble yourselves under, in obedience and trust, mutually dependent upon the mighty hand of God. Acknowledging the presence of the Lord, acknowledging His sovereignty over all things. Sovereignty is a funny thing. We like to invoke sovereignty in world events, but then we like to claim, where is God when it hits us personally and we suffer? Sorry, it's the same sovereignty. The same God who sets up kings and removes them from their throne allows things in our lives that we just don't like that are for His glory and our good. He still reigns. He's still sovereign. He still knows the end from the beginning and promises us that at the proper time, He will exalt us. You may notice this, reflected on some of these most current events, that over the 20-year history of our engagement in Afghanistan and this war on terror, a lot of evil things have taken place. I've noticed that a church or even the church of the West still maintained a sense of confidence in government and governors, princes and kings and presidents for their security and for their hope and for the belief that everything was going to be okay, and we not seem to learn her lesson, <laughs> that they're not in control. It is the God who sits on the throne, who knows the end from the beginning, who is in control. I go back to the beginning of this war on terror, George Bush's response, this conflict was begun at the timing and terms of others, and it will end in a way and in an hour of our choosing. We're in charge here. Boy, we haven't learned anything in 20 years for Biden trying to muster that same presidential hope, said we will respond with force and precision at our time, at the place we choose, in the moment of our choosing. Somehow over the course of 20 years, those words found little solace for my life. But this text screamed out loud to me that at the proper time, regardless of who's in office, our God will raise us up and exalt us again. Are you thankful for that? He knows everything. He is in charge. It is for His glory alone. And we have fallen prey to this notion that our leaders have failed us. No, we live in a fallen world. What did you expect? 
And I expect a lot more of our leaders. <laughs> but my confidence for the future is in a God who sits on the throne. And in due time, He will exalt you. What's Peter saying to these people? He's saying, listen, I know it's hard right now, but there's coming a day where He will lift you up. He will raise you up out of your heartache and, and out of your persecution and out of your suffering. This isn't an eschatological component. He is saying, for the season that you're in, there is suffering. And in His choosing, He will lift that suffering. But there is an eschatological component to that. And some of us need to understand that that season might last until the sound of the trumpet, but it is God's timing. It is at His approval. It is at His will and good pleasure that He will end this madness and raise us or lift us up. But in order for that to happen, there has to be this biblical sense of of humility. J.I. Packer says, not until we become humble and teachable, standing in awe of God's holiness and sovereignty, acknowledging our own littleness, distrusting, distrusting our own thoughts, and willing to have our minds turned upside down, can divine wisdom become ours. In fact, it is so countercultural to the world today. Until we say… We cannot control our own destiny or circumstances. Only God can do that. Will we ever become wise enough to know that in due time, He will lift us up? For it is Him him alone that determines the future and sustains our lives. Therefore, Peter says to these people, in light of that, cast all your anxieties on Him, for He cares for you. What are the anxieties that you brought in to the worship center this morning? I can't imagine how multiple they might be. For health, for relationship, for heartache, for heartbreak, for things that many of us have never experienced in our life, Peter says, because it's not the government or the presidents or the kings or anyone else who determines the future, but God alone. Know this in due time, when He's ready, the appointed moment He will lift you up. So, cast all your anxieties on Him. Casting seems to indicate this continual action, but really what Peter said is cast a decisive act on our part without knowing the outcome to believe that everything's going to be okay. God, I have nothing left. I don't know what tomorrow might bring, but I am casting my lot to You. I'm going to trust You on this one without knowing how this ever turns out. We're not very good at that in the Western world. We're not very good at that in First Baptist. We'll cast our care when we know how this all fleshes out. No, you cast your care because you can't know how this fleshes out, but you know He cares for you, and you know He's got everything under control. So at that proper time, He will lift us up. But right now, we must throw it all on Him in a single act, all of our doubt, all of our discouragement, all of our questioning, our pain, and our suffering all of our discontent and discouragement and doubt, 
when we're wilting under the continuing trials of life, we must learn to throw it all on Him. Why? Peter says, He cares for you. He knows your story. He knows your hurt. And He knows your future. I'm reminded of a psalm writer who says, I'm overwhelmed as God's thoughts towards me, this, this small person in this great universe, but God continually thinks and cares about His own. How overwhelming is that? That's what Peter's trying to, to bring to pass in the lives of, of these believers. leads us to the point, and perhaps one of the most difficult questions in time of suffering, who or what are we trusting this morning for tomorrow, for next month, for next year, for the rest of our days? Where is our hope? Where is the promise? Peter said, it can be in a place that will never let you down, because the God who created everything knows your name, He knows your story, and He cares for you. How can, I, how can you not humble yourselves when you realize that He cares for you? How can you not be overwhelmed? that the God who sits on the throne controlling the affairs of the world cares about you. You will never understand divine wisdom, teachability, and humility until you see the awesome glory of God, holy, holy, holy. You know the problem this morning? It's not your lack of faith. Your God's too small. That's your problem. That's your problem. Your God's too small. But when you have a big God, Peter said, cast all your care upon Him. It reminds me of Paul's words to the church at Philippi. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling in the presence of God and His holiness, it brings to mind the picture painted by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, yet this God of all creation cares for my soul. <coughs> it is that God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. But Pastor Jim, how can it be good? You're looking at it from the wrong perspective. And you're betraying the reality that you're trusting in something else. Satan will whisper all kinds of promises in your ear, but there's only one word that will sustain you in the worst and most difficult times of life. He cares for you. Peter then goes on to say, so be, be sober-minded. Balance the most important issues of life. It's not wrong to feel the sting and pain of life under the sun. It's not, it's not wrong 
to doubt. Doubt and disbelief aren't the same thing. But in the end of the day, there must be this sober-mindedness that reminds us there is only one fix, and it's not here and now. It is rooted in a person who knows the end from the beginning. So be sober-minded. Be watchful. Stay awake. We're reminded in the Scripture time and time again that the day is evil. Because your adversary, the devil, your supreme opponent, the personal attacks of the evil one in the midst of living our life in a fallen world, that diabolus, that devil, that slanderer who attacks and destroys, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, to literally gulp down. C.S. Lewis, in a very astute fashion, said we make two significant mistakes when it comes to this devil. We either joke about him as this caricature with a forked tail and a, and a pitchfork, or we ignore him altogether when the reality is he is our vital enemy doing everything he can to destroy us and to bring us down. And the way he does that best is to distract us from the things that matter most and the notion that even in the worst of times, He cares for you. Have you ever listened to the voice of the evil one? Where is your God now? You think He cares for you? If He even knew about what was going on, don't you suppose He'd come to your rescue? Go home this afternoon and read the book of Job talk to these people in heaven someday who had it far worse than we even know today. Could it get to that point in time? I don't know the end from the beginning, but I'm so thankful I know who does. He's a roaring lion seeking to devour, to take you down in your personal life, in your family life, to destroy the unity of the church, to raise up false teachers and earthly slanderers, to raise up a generation who move in worshiping the Creator to those who have been created, to those who buy into this great lie, they will be devoured. There's something that struck me in this passage of Scripture. I'm not sure how theologically correct it is, but I'm going to share it with you anyhow. I try and picture in my mind this this roaring lion, but, but it doesn't seem to manifest itself in many of the, the nature videos that I watch. We see when a lion is full, he roars. When he's territory, territorial, he roars. But, but when a lion is stalking its prey, he's almost silent, moving through the brush, not making a noise, sneaking up on his prey. Let me tell you something. When you hear the roar, it's too late. He's got you. Peter says, be sober-minded. Be alert. He's not going to roar before he pounces. Boy, so many of us have experienced that, right? Just out of the blue. We're caught unaware. <laughs> and then we begin to doubt and get discouraged and start to listen to those thoughts in our head. Now he roars because he's got you. He's got you. 
It's a roar of victory, at least temporarily. Here's the blessing. Nothing shall pluck you out of your Father's hands. He may have His day, but God has your future, eternally secure in heaven through Jesus Christ. Are you thankful about that? You still better be awake. Because when He gets you in this life, it's a painful experience. But God never loses one of His own, ever, ever, or ever. James, remind us then, therefore submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Well, how are we to resist that devil? I'm, I'm glad you asked. Peter addresses that. He says in verse 9, resist him firm in your faith. Struggle against him. Have, have this resistant force against the evil in the world. Stand up against it. But here's how he says to do that. Nowhere in Scripture, everybody look here if you're not. Some of you have been told that you need to pick a fight with the devil. I am telling you, you need to run into the arms of your Savior. You are no match for that roaring lion. He'll devour you. So how do we fight it? We'll resist firm in the faith. When nothing else makes sense, we go back to the book we go back to what we know of God. What do we know of Him? He loves us. He has stamped us with His ownership. He has given us His Spirit. Our Savior has shed His blood for us. We are eternally secure in the heavens, and when we aren't able to fight, He does all the fighting for us. He's got this under control. You know why the lion roars so much today? Because he knows he's inevitably lost. He's just trying to take as many people as he can. How do you resist him? Firm in the faith. God, you don't care about me. Peter says, casting all your anxiety on him. He cares for you. We have to counter those devilish thoughts, that spiritual warfare battle, that, that suffering that is taking place. And we need to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that every promise that he has made he will keep. Resist Him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Some ask, how does that help me to know that other Christians are suffering too? Well, here's how it helps. In Western civilization, we seem to have made ourselves the center of the universe, <laughs> and it reminds us that God is the center of the universe. Thank you. Thank you. God's the center of the universe. We shift our attention away from ourselves unto the God who cares for us, knowing that we're not alone. There is one body, and we should not be surprised, as Peter writes in chapter 4, verse 12, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, though something strange were happening to you. Why? Verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while… A little while, Peter? You, you know what I'm going through, right? A little while? You're kind of dismissing this as no big deal, Peter. What, what's, what's going on here? It reminds me of Paul. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. He's calling our attention to the brevity of human suffering and light of the glory of eternity, and He's giving us this eschatological perspective that doesn't negate your pain. It just promises you that a better day is coming, and that's all we need. That's what sees us through. That's what sustains us. This notion that other people are going through the same thing doesn't take the sting out of your human suffering. It just reminds us that you're not alone, and after you have suffered a little while, as Peter's already told them, at the proper time, not yours, not mine, but God's at the proper time, He will lift you up. How does He, how does he lift you up? He tells us in in the verse, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, the God of every good and perfect thing, the God who is beyond our comprehension and that causes us to unravel as we stand in the presence of His holiness says, I've got this. I've got this. Let me work out my plan. Let me pour out my grace. I am the God of all grace. There's no place else. There's no other source in the midst of your pain. The God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself, He is going to describe what it means to restore and lift you up again. The God of all grace has called you to His eternal glory in Christ. John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. We used to sing that old hymn, it shall be worth it all when we see Jesus. Do you ever notice that at the times of life's greatest suffering, those words become more meaningful? Peter's saying, hey, listen, hang on, this God of all glory who has called you to eternal glory in Christ, will Himself. He has promised, and He will keep His promise. He will restore you. He will make you complete. He will repair the damage to your soul. He will fight the good fight for you, and He will place upon you all of the grace mustered in the Godhead. He will confirm you. He will set you fast on a foundation that cannot be rocked, though the storms come and beat upon that house. Remind you of anything? the Sermon on the Mount. And the one who builds his house upon the rock, the storms still come, and great is the wind, but the house on the rock stands firm. How glorious that even in a child's worship song, there is deep, deep, deep truth. 
building on the foundation, confirmed in that foundation doesn't mean there won't be any storms. It means that the house will not fall. He will set you fast. He will strengthen you. He will establish you. He will settle it as placing you on a firm foundation as a divine act of grace. He will settle it, and you will know that everything is going to be okay. I want to tell you something here. We also have to be reminded of who wrote the book. You remember him, the Apostle Peter, the one who denied the Savior three times? There was an interesting exchange again in that upper room, and the events that soon transpired where Jesus looked at Peter and said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that you, your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, that you would strengthen your brothers. P- Peter, you're not up for this fight. But I, as your Savior and King, are praying for the victory. Peter, of course, says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Can't trust anybody else, but I'm with you. Peter, you don't know what you're talking about. Peter had to learn to cast all his anxieties on Christ. When he calls upon you to do the same, this is a man who's been there and done that in the worst of circumstances. And he says, here's what I've learned. (laughs) In time, he will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom the whole, every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and your Jew being rooted and grounded in love, (coughs) may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you might be filled with all of the fullness of God. That's your God. That's your Savior. Therefore, to Him who was able to do far more abundant than we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and forever. Amen. Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, historic figure, a long, long time ago, once famously proclaimed, Almighty God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. That's exactly what Peter's saying. Some of you are restless because you haven't found your rest in Him. Some of you are anxious because you haven't found your rest in Him. Some of you are terrified because you have not found your rest in Him. And some of you are ignorant because the rest that you found is a blind rest that thinks everything's just going to work out and turn out okay in the end. It is going to get worse. 
before it ever gets better. The rest is in the fact that it will get better because He cares for you, and He will confirm you and establish you and strengthen you and set you on that rock. And when you find in your restlessness that rock, you will finally find rest. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on Him, for He cares for you. I don't know about you, there is a divine tension. Just when I think I have a handle on this, this humility and anxiety and truly believing, He allows me to go through another valley and another storm and one more thing. I realize I didn't have as good a grip on this as I, as I thought I did. And there's a divine tension between seeing reality and trusting in something bigger than that reality. And I can tell you for sure, I am learning and living that all over again. For me, the place that I go is what John Calvin wrote about in his Institutes. Man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with the majesty of God. Holy, holy, holy. What are you trusting in this morning? Where's your hope? When it's in this Christ, when you finally see the light, it turns into worship. Peter breaks out in a doxology at the end of this passage saying, to Him be the dominion forever and forever and forever and forever. Well, you know what he says. God never, ever, ever gives up the ability to control and dominate over absolutely everything. He never gives up this notion of His sovereignty, doling it out to presidents and kings. He never loses His throne, and no matter what Satan might whisper in your ear, you must hang on to the fact that it is Christ and Christ alone that will sustain you in the midst of your pain. Amen and amen. Let it be so, and that's the divine tension. I'm trying. I'm trying to learn this. I'm living and learning it before your very eyes and maybe you before mine. We're trying… We'll never get it perfect, but I pray today we get it. I learned to live Cormdale before the face of God, whatever it takes, Lord. What a scary prayer, whatever it takes. I'm casting all my care on you. I can't do this. To Him, the glory, dominion, honor forever and forever. Amen. That's enough. It's good for today. Tomorrow's sufficient for the evil thereof. Loud and clear, I've heard your message, God. Everything's going to be okay. Father, I pray that you bless us, that you teach us, that you grow us, that you challenge us. And as we cry out in our suffering, why, O oh Lord, that we'll see your glory. And we desperately, desperately need to see 
your glory. Show us your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.